More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. So today I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. David Healy. Dr. Healy is a psychiatrist, psychopharmacologist, and author. Born in Dublin, he qualified in medicine in Ireland and had been a professor of psychiatry at Cardiff and Bangor universities at the University of Toronto and now at McMaster. His main areas of research are clinical trials in psychopharmacology, the history of psychopharmacology, and the impact of both trials and psychotropic drugs on our culture. He has written the leading histories of the antidepressant, antipsychotic, and mood stabilizing groups of drugs, and is an expert on pharmacovigilance, where he has raised the profile of suicide and sexual dysfunction inducing effects of a number of these and other drugs. Dr. Healy has authored more than 220 peer-reviewed articles and 25 books, including the fantastically titled Pharmageddon and the book most pertinent for today, Shipwreck of the Singular. He has been an expert witness in homicide and suicide trials involving psychotropic drugs and has raised awareness of how pharmaceutical companies sell drugs by marketing diseases and ghostwriting their articles. Dr. Healy is the founder of Database Medicine and uh, prescriptionisc.org, which are based in Canada and aim to make medicine safer through online direct patient reporting of side effects. So this is who Dr. Healy is on paper, but my experience has been, you know, that resumes, interesting though they are, often tell too little and sometimes too much about a person. And so I am so delighted that we are here talking uh, with Dr. Healy today. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. So where Julie, would you like to start? Julie, it's good to be here. So yes, I was thinking about this issue about um, where to start. And I've been thinking about it for a week or so or more. And um, yesterday, a lady whom I'd been treating many years ago, 20 years ago or more, came to mind. And I thought, gosh, yes, this is a case that might be useful to tell people about and maybe confuse people slightly. This was a lady, this was back when I was uh, involved in treating people over in Wales, and this lady was not one of my patients. So she had links to the mental health service because she was anxious. Being Welsh, her name was Harris, so we can call her Kamala Harris for the moment, okay? And uh, she was a very charming woman who every so often became very anxious. And one evening when she became particularly agitated, she jumped out the window of her apartment. And this was one floor up. So she broke both her heels. Now, if she'd broken her ankles, that wouldn't have been too big a problem. But if you break your heel bone, it's worse. And in her case, she pushed part of the right heel bone back up the back of her right leg. So the orthopedic surgeons, when they got to see her, said, look, if we don't operate on you, you're not going to walk again. Uh, but she said, well, you know, I'm not happy to sign the consent form. And they were awfully bothered about this and called the mental health unit because they knew she had a mental health history and got hold of me, even though I wasn't the doctor treating her, okay? The person treating her was away. 
And he said, if he'd been there, he wouldn't have done what I did, which was, I went up to see her and we had a chat and she made it clear that there were no crazy ideas she had uh, about why she wouldn't uh, actually sign the consent form. She didn't think they were going to put any Bill Gates type things into her heels to track her or things like that. You know, she was awfully reasonable. She was just anxious about it and wouldn't actually sign the consent form. So we didn't argue about it. I just said to the treating team, look, go ahead and do the operation and I'll take responsibility for what happens. And they did, and the outcome was good. She ended up um, not only being able to walk again, but actually happy to change doctors from the doctor who had been treating her to me. Okay, and uh, you know, thinking about it afterwards, um, part of the issue here was I was reasonably confident that things would turn out well. And um, if they did turn out well, that she wouldn't sue me. And reasonably confident as well, if things didn't turn out well and we, and we ended up going to court, that the court would probably side with me. They might not be totally happy about it, but they'd figure, look, you know, in uh, the circumstances, I did mean well, and I was trying to do the best that I could by her, and they'd give me the benefit of the doubt, okay? Now, this case probably came to mind because that's the kind of situation the university here are in. They put a mandate in place, okay? From their point of view, someone like David Healy, who refuses to get vaccinated, is a bit like you know, the patient I have. You know, he's anxious. And we don't really believe him when he says he's not anxious about the vaccine. He thinks there'd be no great harm if he had it. Uh, he goes on about a few other things that we don't quite know how to understand, but, you know, we figure that once we go ahead and force him uh, you know, to have the vaccination by saying, look, you're going to lose your job if you don't have it. And for me, losing my job's tricky in that my work permit's tied to the job. And if I lose my job, I lose my work permit and I have to leave the country. But the problem is the powers that be can't put me on a plane because I've got a rule you have to be vaccinated to get on a plane. So I'm going to end up in some awful you're, detention center somewhere. Well, yes, yes. So, but anyway, um, so this is a bit mystifying, I think, for the people who run uh, uh, the university here. But they figure that, well, if the worst comes to the worst and Healy is injured, or even just awfully unhappy at the fact we've uh, actually forced him to have the vaccination, or loses his job, the courts are going to side with them. They're going to figure, well, you know, we don't quite like what was done to Healy, but, you know, they meant well, and, uh, you know, we, we really can't uh, give a verdict against people that mean well. And, you know, the problem here is even that people who may be listening into this were anti-vax, who don't want to force treatment on people, will say, well, we'll make an exception for Healy. He should have treatment forced on him because, you know, he was happy to force treatment on Kamala Harris way back, you know. So, and the other thing is even taking a human rights action isn't really good to help because the people who framed the human rights acts didn't have in mind the kind of problems that I have just now at the moment, okay, which I'm going to outline to people. But first of all, just to hopefully help people stay tuned in, there's going to be very little in anything I say about mRNA, 
or spike proteins or biology or anything like that. It's going to be about sex. It's going to be about people being seduced. Things like the things that the average listener is going to know far more about than Health Canada or Justin Trudeau or the university deans or whatever. Okay. Um, there isn't going to be anything particularly new that I'm going to say either. Okay. I've, the issues that, that I've got are ones that I put in um, at the public domain way back, nearly 20 years ago. Uh, I was asked to speak at a House of Commons Health Select uh, a committee meeting, and I put these issues on the radar there. And I've been in touch with ministers of health about them and the BMA and the people who write the guidelines and regulators in Europe and the UK and FDA and people like that, and even Health Canada. And no one argues with the points that I'm going to make. They, they say, well, yes, we agree with all you said, but what can we do about it? Okay. Since uh, the mandates came in the frame recently, and the issue is, can I uh, actually apply to get an exemption? I've made the case to uh, the CPSO here, I've made the case to Health Canada, I've made the case to the Ontario Human Rights Commission, to the university deans, the, um, and, um, and uh, also uh, uh, the president, and they haven't answered. Okay. They so, haven't responded to you at all. It's not that all. they're deferring. No. So the issues are there are things that they can't answer or won't answer or don't know how to answer. What are they? Well, roughly there's three different things. Okay. One is the fact that there's no access to the data from the clinical trials that brought the vaccines are the drugs that anyone listening to this program is on. Okay, now we're exhorted on all sides to follow the science. Well, you can't follow the science if there's no access to the data. When I say no access to the data, what do I mean? Well, I mean that even Health Canada hasn't seen the data. They've approved the vaccines, but they haven't seen the data behind them. And that's true for all of the drugs that anyone listening to this Maybe on. Are their children maybe on? Are their parents maybe on? And it isn't just that. Health Canada and the FDA have, without seeing the actual data, have approved drugs in the past, even when the company has told them our trials show that this drug doesn't work. And they've still agreed to approve the drug and not mention that the clinical trials in the, uh, show that this drug doesn't work. The public domain uh, articles about the drugs say the drug works wonderfully well and is totally safe. And the regulators know this because they've been told by the company, well, you know, the drug didn't work well. And part of what's going on here is point number two, which is all of the articles in the public domain about the drugs and the vaccines are ghost written. That is, you have a bunch of authors on the authorship line. They haven't written the articles. They haven't seen the data, even though the article may say that they have seen the data. And the key point behind the ghostwriting is that this, the, it offers the companies a chance to hide the benefits and hide the harms. Now, in the case of the vaccine articles, they even say they're ghostwritten. 
most journalists or doctors or whoever you mention this to say, well, they wouldn't have done this for the vaccine articles, would they? Well, in actual fact, the vaccine articles say very, very clearly that they're ghostwritten. And the third issue is about harms. I deal in the harms that the drugs and vaccines can cause, okay? And I've got a bunch of people who've been harmed by the different vaccines that people can now be put on. And the issue here is that it's awfully clear that the vaccine or the drug has caused the harm. And there's two or three points here. One is that people who may have a husband or a wife or children or parents injured by one of the vaccines are better placed to establish did the vaccine cause the harm than Health Canada or our public health are. These people aren't trained to establish harms. The person living with a person who's either been injured or killed is much better placed to work out, well, did the vaccine or a pill that I'm on cause these problems, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you put all those together, these three points, we end up with a pandemic of overtreatment. Over the last 40 years, people are on more and more drugs. We used to be on extremely few. Now, most of us over the age of 45 are on at least three drugs. Most of us over the age of 65 are on at least five drugs every single day of the year. And this is killing us. Life expectancy was falling before COVID. It's falling even more now. Uh, and it appears to be linked not just to COVID, but to uh, the vaccines that we're on also. So the issue for me is, you know, I'm trying to get people to listen to something else that's as lethal or more lethal than COVID, but that the powers to be seem to be unwilling to get a grip of. Maybe there's so much of interest here and so much that's important, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. So can I backtrack a little bit sure. to the earlier yeah. part, parts of what you had to say and just try to unpack a few things that might not be, um, you know, in sort of the common discourse for, for people, sure. right? So the first thing, one of the first things you said that I think people will find quite surprising, they'll say, how could this be? You said something like, you know, Health Canada has approved a drug. Now, this set of uh, COVID-19 vaccines, but then you said this has happened also prior to sort of 2020, 2021, um, but they haven't seen the data on which to base that kind of approval. So can you say more about that? Um, why haven't they seen the data? What kind of data should they have seen or should they be looking at? Why is there not that kind of transparency or communication between the data creators and the, uh, the, the approvers in our, um, in our country? And, and what are the harms of this? Like, why should we be worried about this? Okay, well, you've asked me about three or four things there, so you may need to remind me about things. Then we'll okay. go back. Okay, sure. <laughs> right, well, first of all, <clears throat> I guess there's when drugs or vaccines come on the market, it's through a process of randomized clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And these are usually called RCTs. Okay, now, in fact, what happens with uh, you know, the vaccines and drugs is not really an RCT, these are assay systems. 
Okay, they're, they're designed that the drug and vaccine is going to be able to get through it reasonably safely and reasonably quickly uh, and get at the far end and let the regulator tick a box. Okay, now in the case of um, the ASIC systems and why I say they're not, uh, they're not um, really uh, kind of scientific study, take the antidepressants, for instance, okay? What you've got there is, well, in any assay like this, what you have is what's called a primary endpoint. The thing that people focus in on in order to try and work out, did the drug change this or not, right? Was it and, effective? Is that the effectiveness? Well, not That's quite, it. no. They, they pick the, like, for instance, in the case of treating people um, who are depressed, you might figure that the obvious thing that the drug should be doing is keeping people alive, okay? And in the case of uh, the vaccines, it's the same thing. You know, the obvious thing these things should be doing is keeping people alive. Now, in the case of the antidepressants and the vaccines, more people have died on the antidepressants and the vaccines in the clinical trials than on placebo. What the trials have looked at instead is, in the case of the antidepressants, a Hamilton rating scale score. This is a depression rating scale. And in the case of the vaccines, they've looked at whether people are likely to get infected after they've had the vaccine. Now, there's a quirk in that, there's a twist in that that we may get into, but you know, um, I don't want to speak too much about um, uh, uh, the vaccine trials per se, but the point is, what I want people uh, to focus in on is that they're not looking at, these trials aren't looking at the, the, the key important things. They're looking at things that the companies think, well, if we can show there's a change on this, the regulator will buy the idea that this drug works and will tick the box and let us claim that this is an antidepressant or this is a vaccine, okay? Mm -hmm. In actual fact, you may have more people dying on the treatment. But apart from that, there's a few other things that happen. One is because of the focus on the depression rating scale score, things that are happening much more often than the change in mood may be missed. And in the case of uh, the antidepressants, for instance, it's the effect of these drugs on people's ability to make love. 30 minutes after you have your first SSRI pill, people become genitally numb. And th this actually happens to, to everyone who has these pills. The mood change, which can take weeks to appear, is relatively rare. But in terms of the trial process, getting people to focus in on whether there's a, a change in mood means doctors completely miss the fact that everybody's love life has been changed by these pills. Mm -hmm. And you know, the vaccine thing is a little bit the same, which is there's an intense focus on, do people who have the vaccine get infected as often as people who haven't had it? Mm -hmm. Now, that's a relatively rare thing. They had to recruit 40,000 people to be able to show that maybe there's a difference here. In actual fact, the single thing that's happening to all people that they didn't look at is, well, we get this mRNA drug, 
and it causes a spike protein to be made, and that travels all the way around the body. So this is happening much more often, but there isn't anyone looking at, well, what are the consequences uh, of that? Now, go on. Sorry, yeah. go on. Well, let, let me just pause you there because um, there's this big elephant that's hanging in the room it, during all of these conversations these days. And even if we leave aside for a minute the possible harms that are overlooked in these drug trials for, for the vaccines, um, why aren't they working? Aren't they? So this, this is an interesting question that I think is being sort of echoed uh, in, in the media, in social media, um, that's running alongside questions about the harms, right, and the spike protein sort of discussion. Um, but there are so many stories of people saying, uh, you know, oh, my whole family got uh, vaccinated and we all have COVID now. Thank goodness we got vaccinated which is a very odd, um, I mean, if you said that about the meningitis vaccine or the smallpox vaccine or heart surgery or something, you know, uh, you know, I, I have, I have heart disease now, thank goodness I had heart surgery. It's a very odd sort of uh, mental state to be in, right? So why do you think, I mean, in what sense charitably are the vaccines working if what's going on in the drug trials is what you know what you're describing um and secondly i think even the more interesting question is what's going on now this is taking us farther down the road than i was planning to go at this point in the conversation but what's going on psychologically you're a psychiatrist you 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 have spent much of your life studying normal psychological behavior, abnormal psychological behavior. What's going on that allows us to think, that makes us think that um, not only are these vaccines effective, even though people can still get sick when taking them, even though they don't reduce transmission. Um, and then, you know, what allows us to say, well, everybody must do it. Yeah. Okay. Great I think there are four more questions in there packed in. Sure, I know. Great point. Let me get you to pick up that bit afterwards. Okay. What is it about uh, the way we're thinking about these things, the way we're seeing them, that means that we go along with all this? Yeah. Let's leave that to a little That's bit. That's a psychological, yeah. yeah. Toward the end of it, perhaps. Yeah. Okay. But before that, then, okay, why, why, um, what's actually going on? Why do we get COVID after we've had the vaccination. My 91-year-old mother recently had her booster and caught COVID a few weeks later. Why do things like this happen? Okay. And well, the answer is uh, a little bit, and, and I'm not, as I said, going to go into um, the vaccines per se. I'm going into the clinical trial here, which is the trials weren't actually designed to tell us what's going on. They're designed to let the regulator tick a box. And if the regulator should sees that, well, yes, there's less infections, uh, it seems, on um, you know, the vaccine than in the people who haven't had the vaccine, they can tick the box and mm -hmm. say, yes, you can go ahead and advertise your product as a vaccine. And the company can then say, well, and you know, it was 95% effective, which gives people the impression that, you know, there's almost no chance that you're going to die or get um, sick. Or get sick on this. Uh, but in fact, in the Pfizer um, vaccine trial, more people died on the vaccine than on the placebo. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's a mismatch here, and the mismatch comes from the regulatory process. And most of us figuring 
that Health Canada and FDA are part of the public health apparatus, as it were. They're in the business of keeping us safe. They're in the business of really knowing, do the vaccines actually work or not, when they're not part of the public health apparatus. They're regulators. And just to bring the point home, it's, it's, it's regulators regulate both food and drugs, as in the FDA, the Food and Drug Agency, okay? And um, when they're faced with butter, for instance, let's say uh, uh, the regulator has to approve butter and they've got a lump of yellow stuff sitting there in front of them, okay? Well, now it might be lard colored to look like butter, or it might be butter. And they've got criteria for actually working out which is which, okay? And they can say, well, yes, this meets the criteria for butter. But they're not saying this is good butter, and they're not saying butter is good for you. They're just letting a company advertise this product as butter. Mm. In the same way, all they're doing with uh, the Pfizer vaccine in quotes is letting the company use that word. And in fact, they had to change the definition of vaccine this year in order to be able to let the company use the word. But at the end of the day, you know, a little bit of the problem is, and this comes back to the other bit of uh, the question you asked me, which is most of us want a father figure. We want God up there to keep us safe. And somehow we put FDA and Health Canada in that role. We think that they're competent scientists, that they know about medicine, they know about drugs and things like this, and they're looking after us and they wouldn't let things through the process that could injure or harm us or in a sense be false. And they aren't in a sense letting things through that could be false in this, but the issue is we don't understand their role. They're doing their role quite perfectly. Their job is just to say, can you use the word vaccine about this product? And the answer is yes, when you change the definition of the word, yes, you can, but they're not in the business of trying to keep us healthy or safe. And what they approve, they, they aren't saying when we approve this, that more lives are going to be saved than otherwise would happen. This is so interesting. It, it might be the case that nothing else better defines the narrative surrounding our current COVID situation than the phrase, trust the experts, right? And when our interview comes out, people who, who disagree with it or oppose it will undoubtedly say, well, they're talking about things that have to do with drug trials and epidemiology and vaccinology, and they're not vaccinologists. How dare they talk about these things? Because we have this like deeply ingrained right, um, a mantra that we should trust the experts and the experts have exclusive domain over not certain kinds of scientific knowledge. And we've also, I think American Magazine wrote, uh, was it in October of last year, that trust the experts is the new obey the priest or something like that. And, and you mentioned that, that we want someone like Health Canada, an entity like Health Canada to be dominion over us, like a god. Um, so many interesting questions about why that is. I've wondered about this myself, about whether we're missing a kind of purposefulness in our lives. And so we, we need a surrogate. We need something to step in for that. Um, but let's just focus on the sort of the issue of um, sort of credentialism and expertiseism for a minute, um, because it seems like one thing we're doing with that is outsourcing all of our medical thinking and then our 
right to make medical choices to the experts, right? We say, well, Health Canada says, Dr. Tam, Dr. Moore say, um, therefore, I'll let them make the decisions for me. And I won't worry about that anymore. Is that what's going on? I'll just outsource my thinking to these so-called experts. And I've either done something good or virtuous by doing that, or I've reduced my workload. Is it just a management situation? Or, or do you think it's a part of something broader cultural that's going on in terms of our views about the priority and importance of science or experts in society? Um, what's going on there, do you think? Well, uh, they're all great questions. Um, and when it comes to health, um, a key thing is you shouldn't trust the experts. And that's increasingly the case. Um, when you take a drug um, or a vaccine, you're the person who knows what's actually happening more than anyone else does. Okay, and this point that we probably need to come back to a few times because I've got a few really good stories about this to, uh, to actually let you know about. But when you said trust the experts, um, I'll uh, the other phrase has also been follow uh, uh, the science. Now, the point I made earlier on was that, well, without having access to the data, you can't follow the science. Okay, now. What do I mean by the data? And you asked me this earlier and I didn't quite answer it properly, which was the data in a clinical trial, it's easier in the case of a trial of the antidepressants than it is in you know, the 40,000 people who were in uh, the Pfizer vaccine trial. But in the case of a few hundred people, like for instance, there's study 329, which was a study of, of paroxetine being given to children who are depressed. And this so appeared as an article. Can you explain that drug to people? Yeah, this is also called, called Paxil. It's an SSRI drug. And it's a drug that was used widely to treat people who are adults also. Now, mm -hmm. the company decided to run some trials in children uh, uh, too uh, and see if it helped them. And the most famous trial was called Study 329. Study 329 was written up and appeared in a journal uh, which claimed that, well, this clinical trial had shown Paxil works wonderfully well for children who are depressed and is entirely safe. And it appeared with 22 authors on the authorship line in the journal with the highest impact factor in the child psychiatry field. So when most doctors read this article, they raced out and tried to find all the teenagers they could find and put them on this drug because it looked like it was going to be marvelous for them. Now, it turned out that internally in the company, GlaxoSmithKline had, had looked at the data before it went to Health Canada and before it went to FDA, and they concluded internally that the drug didn't work. But they couldn't tell the world this. So what they said in a document was we're going to pick the good bits of this trial out and publish them. When this document came to light, uh, it ended up in the hands of the, uh, the, the Attorney General from New York State who thought, huh, we need to do something about this, and he sued GlaxoSmithKline for fraud. Now, the upshot of that was they agreed that they were going to make 
the data from study 329 more available. Uh, what this meant was the original article was a 10-page article. All of a sudden, we find that behind this, there's a company clinical study report that's 800 pages long. And there are appendices to that that are a further 5,000 pages long. So this is close to 6,000 pages. And they agreed with New York State that they would let the world see these. Now, a few years after that, along with some colleagues, I got involved in looking at these more closely and saying, look, you know, what they wrote up in the original 10-page article is clearly wrong. We'd like to rewrite the actual study and show the world what it should have looked like, which was the drug didn't work and was actually hazardous, okay? Now, in the case of um, study 329, this is true for all clinical trials, behind the nearly 6,000 pages that the world could see, there was a further bit of information that GlaxoSmithKline didn't let anyone know about, not even New York State, okay? And this was a further file that was 77,000 pages long. Right, so between one thing and the other, maybe by accident, the group that I was working out with, we got hold of this and were able to look much more thoroughly at what was going on. And there's a few points to make here. One is that this is the kind of material Health Canada don't get. It's the kind of material that FDA don't get. If they do get it in some notional sense, they don't look at it. For instance, when you looked at the, the 6,000 pages, you saw a bunch of children being labeled as being emotionally labile. FDA looked at this, Health Canada looked at this and said, oh, what's the problem with children being emotionally labile? Well, it turns out that this is the coding term being used for children who had tried to kill themselves. If you didn't have access to the 77,000 pages, or if you didn't have, ideally, actually, you need access to the children or their parents to find out what really happened. And I'll um, actually explain this to you now in a moment. But I mean, so the key thing here is that people are the data in clinical trials. It's not figures, and it's not the statistical tests that get done on those figures. The data is people. And, You've talked about experts and do we need experts? Well, the curious thing about it is this. When you have the 10-page article, which is full of statistical jargon, you do need a few experts in there, maybe. People who've been trained in this kind of stuff to interpret it. Mm -hmm. But if you have the 77,000 pages or more, you could give this to a bunch of kids who've just come out of high school or just gone into college and said, look, guys, can you work your way through this and spot what's going on here? They don't have to have any training in health at all, okay? It's the kind of stuff you don't need expertise in. You just need common sense. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of thing that Health Canada and FDA don't bring to this. They're just checking, did the company use the statistical tests we're used to seeing? That's what they're checking. They're not looking at, well, what's behind this term emotionally labile, okay? And that's the kind of thing that we had a chance to look at 
and found out, well, actually, all these kids who are labeled this way have tried to harm themselves in one way or the other. And there was a further thing which um, FDA and Health Canada didn't, I mean, if any of them, let me explain. If there's emotionally labeled children in this trial, okay, Health Canada and FDA, if someone in there stumbles over this and um, says, gosh, it's interesting, I've looked at a few of these cases and the child does seem to have been suicidal. Maybe we should look at this in a bit more detail. What they're faced with is the fact they're in a bureaucratic apparatus and it's going to be, it's going to cause months of upheaval if they found a problem like this that the system's going to have to deal with. So there's a lot of pressure on any of the bureaucrats in there to just let it go, tick a box and, uh, you know, we aren't going to be responsible for it. We didn't put this coding uh, on these events, okay? Mm -hmm. but let me give you one more thing that even fooled us right to the end. When um, a person is in a clinical, and this is true of uh, at the vaccine trials also, okay? So people may think that I'm going off on SSRIs here for a moment, but no, everything that I'm saying to you now is uh, applies to uh, at the vaccine trials also. One of the company tricks that they came up with during the 1990s when they were doing these trials of the SSRI group of drugs in children was this. And I'm going to detour slightly to a Pfizer trial, okay? Which was in, in one of the trials of one of the drugs to treat nervous problems. Um, the, the bureaucrats looking at the material, people in Health Canada and the FDA looking at the actual um, material, <coughs> will see <clears throat> that the people uh, who've died in this trial, you know, as, as can happen by accident in any clinical trial. You know, you may be hit by a car or a truck or whatever, or you may have an accident and die from your burns. <clears throat> so most of um, uh, you know, the bureaucrats seeing death by burns will say, oh, well, yes, this is just the kind of thing that we wouldn't think it's linked to uh, you know, the pill. It's just one of these accidental things that happened. The companies also have to write, when you have a person that dies, they should be writing what's called a, a, an account of the actual death, a, a one or two page um, piece of paper about what actually happened to lead to this death by burns. If you get hold of that and read it, what you find in this man's case was he'd poured petrol on himself and set fire to it, intending to kill himself. And this was an effect of the drug he was on, mm -hmm. okay? But he didn't die there and then, he didn't die until five days later. So he becomes death by burns rather than, uh, than actually death by suicide. Now, yeah. that's the kind of thing that you or I, if we get the 5,000 pages worth of stuff, uh, you'll be able to, if you want, you'll be able to find this stuff and work out, well, this should have really been coded as death by suicide. Yeah. What was in there as well, though, was a number of children in the case of, uh, of uh, in the case of study 329, 
Mm -hmm. uh, you had a number of children who were also taking Paxil. They were all taking Paxil. And the oddity about this is, you know, it's the kind of thing that shouldn't be happening if the blind was really blind, okay? Which was for the children taking Paxil dropped out with what was called an intercurrent illness. They just disappeared from the trial. And in one of the cases we found out, or I found out by accident, that actually what had happened was this 15 year old boy was picked up by the police and brought to hospital because he was out on the street waving a gun around, threatening to kill people. Now this was a disinhibiting effect of uh, at the Paxil he was on, but the company had found out or had, had realized that if you code this, not as burns, death by burns or ending up in hospital because you've got burns where you have to write a one or two page account of what actually happened. If you say that this child had an other illness and you, know, you don't even have to say what the other illness is. If this child had an other illness, you don't have to write this one or two page thing to let the world know what actually happened. And people like me may have to come across and say, well, look, really, this is, uh, this is caused by the pill he was on. Um, and so they just disappear. Now, in the vaccine trials, what, I mean, this is the beauty about the way the companies do things. They tell you upfront what they're doing. In the AstraZeneca trial, they said, you know, here's you know, the COVID deaths and we've censored the non-COVID deaths and we're not reporting these to you because we're saying that they, was, that they actually stem from an intercurrent illness. You know, that this person who had a vaccine and had a heart attack soon afterwards must have had a heart disease beforehand. Mm -hmm. uh, so because of that, we're just not writing a report about what happened and we're also not even going to let you see the figures. Let's talk about this for a minute, because this is so interesting. Someone asked me in an interview about a week ago, she said, well, if the vaccines are so, are so harmful, why aren't we seeing more adverse events? And my answer was, I'm not sure we're not, for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. Um, it seems to me there's a lot of, there are a lot of stories at the anecdotal level because they can't help but be anecdotal if the Canada's reporting system won't uptake the, the cases, right? Um, so a lot of anecdotes uh, of, of people with heart disease in family, stroke, died suddenly. Um, and then you find out that they were, you know, this is within two weeks of getting the booster shot or something like that. And if you raise the question and say, well, um, what's gone on in your life that's different in the last couple of weeks? And you, you know, as physicians are uh, expected to do, take a good history and find out that, well, the only thing that's really substantially different is that this person got um, one of the booster shots for, for COVID. That would seem to me, I'm not a physician, but that would seem to me to be clinically significant. And important to document, not establishing clear connection, but would be remarkable enough to get on the radar to warrant further investigation. And that, as far as I can tell from all of the healthcare professionals I speak with is not what's happening. Um, it's just dismissed 
quickly, efficiently, routinely, unapologetically. So the in, really interesting question there to me, again, this is sort of a psychological question, but as, a, as an ethicist, there's, there's this moral dimension to it because there's a possibility that it's causing great harm, which is that why do you think it is that the idea that a drug could have an adverse event is so threatening to us, is so unsettling to us. Um, it's not surprising that, that, a, that a pharmaceutical company who makes that drug would want to minimize talk of harms of that drug. But why are we seeing that in the physician population? Why are we seeing that in society generally? Why is that the last place anyone wants to go? Julie, you're asking some great questions, and <clears throat> unfortunately, I don't have a pen here to keep track of them. So you're actually going to have to try and uh, Let's keep see. an eye on the ones that I answer and the ones that I don't. Yes, I have um, a long list, and I, <clears throat> it's like a it's like a tree diagram. Everything okay. you say, then I get three or four <laughs> more. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, <clears throat> this all I mean, um, this comes back to the SSRIs again, in the sense. The story that we faced with uh, the vaccines now began 30 years ago when Prozac was uh, put in the dark as causing people to uh, commit suicide. And it was put in the dock on the basis of some case reports. A bunch of doctors around the world, including me, had seen people who had been put on Prozac have become suicidal. You take the drug away, the problem clears up. You give them the drug back again, the problem comes back. Okay, so it seemed awfully clear-cut and, and, and there was no other way to actually explain what happened. So it seemed awfully clear-cut that the drug was causing the problem. And in medicine, up till that point, the way doctors worked out, does a drug cause a problem, was just like that. They interviewed the patient that came in to see them and work out is there anything else going on in this person's life or their health or whatever that could explain what's happening and if they couldn't see anything else maybe they thought about it because they didn't want to think that they'd given you a drug that might cause you to commit suicide so they were a bit resistant and they thought about it but they had a chance to come back and see you again a few times get their colleagues in as well and say look can you see any other way to explain this and if they couldn't you've hinted that it may not be absolutely for sure that the drug has caused the problem but in actual fact, it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way it was phrased was on the balance of probabilities, the best explanation for this is that the drug or the vaccine has caused the problem. Sure, it's not absolutely certain, but nothing in science is. You know, no, when we, that's not what we're hearing these days. Science when is we do, well, no, the whole point <laughs> behind the scientific experiment is you do it. And you force the people who are in the room, whether they're Catholic or Hindu or Muslim or Jew or atheist, to leave all that at the door, leave all those beliefs uh, at the door and just explain the data in front of you. And you're trying to get them to leave the room agreeing, well, whatever else we believe, yes, we think this drug perhaps caused the problem, okay? So, uh, but you will also say, if any other evidence turns up, we reserve the right to change our mind, which is true of all science, which is, you know, you run the experiment and people are forced to, to work out, well, what does the data that we've just seen show? 
but they're also told, look, you can go home and create your own apparatus and run the experiment again and see if you get the same result. Or if you tweak the apparatus, maybe you're able to get you know, the data to look different and force people to think again about what's actually going on. That's science. When did we lose that part of science, do you think? 1990. 1990 is when we lost it. Because when you were faced with these case reports about Prozac causing people uh, to commit suicide, the company responded by saying, well, our clinical trials don't show this. When we meta-analyze the RCTs we've done, you know, there isn't any evidence that the clinical trials show this. Now, in fact, you could have a bunch of trials which don't show a problem, okay? They do appear to show that people taking the drug are less likely to commit suicide than people taking placebo, even though the drug you use in the control trial is one that can cause people to, uh, to actually commit suicide. You know, there isn't necessarily a mismatch here in the sense you're maybe using a drug that can cause people to commit suicide uh, to try and treat an illness that can also cause people uh, you know, to commit suicide. And if the drug works well, then there's less likelihood that you're going to go on to commit suicide. But in the Prozac trials, and this comes back to sort of the theme of what we've been through, mm -hmm. FDA could see, but didn't let the world know, that actually there were more suicidal events in the Prozac trials than in, on Prozac than on placebo. There were more people going on to commit suicide on the drug than on placebo. But again, that was kept hidden from people, okay? And Health Canada did, did exactly the same thing. But out of all this came the mantra. The company defense was, you know, which are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the anecdotes, the case reports from people like David Healy are the science. And what we've had is the team the whole way through since, which is these are just anecdotes. These are misinformation is um, uh, as the word being used now, they're not. I'm hoping people get the idea of the, first of all, RCTs are not great science. They can completely miss what's going on, even when they're done by angels, okay? Um, but besides that, if you don't have access to the data, the RCTs aren't science in the way that me interviewing you, let's say I put you on some pill and you've had a problem, we're both there in the room. When I have you in the room talking to me and trying to explain things to me, all the data is there, okay? So that's actually in, in the wholeness of the person sitting in front of you. Well, in the sense that everything this pill is doing, and people get this misleading idea that drugs like the antidepressants go to a little bit of the brain that they're made by God to go to, and that's all they do. And in fact, mm -hmm. very little of the antidepressants goes to your brain. The single quickest thing that happens is your genitals are affected by an antidepressant, okay? Mm -hmm. So when mm -hmm. I put you on, on a drug, every drug that I could put you on does at least 100 things, at least 100. In the case of one of the drugs that's used for hair loss in Man, the current figure for the number of things this drug does is 3,500 things. The company's just trying to get you to look at one of those things and trying to focus you intently on that. 
when I have you in the room and you're free to say whatever you want and I'm free to ask you whatever I want, then we're getting much closer to what this drug is actually doing to you. Can I give you a good instance as well? Um, yeah, okay. Please. I've said, well, actually, I, I can give you two or three good instances. I had, uh, this may come back to the expert point. Mm. I had a lady come to me once who had no background in healthcare at all. Okay. She uh, had dropped out of school early. She was just a very average woman, you would have thought. Okay. And her father had died and at the funeral she had been eating a piece of cake or whatever and had choked on it and for the next few days afterwards she was feeling a kind of lump in her throat and it was a bit sore and whatever and she went along to a doctor and explained that you know she'd been at the funeral and things like that so he thought this was a nervous lump okay and put her on an SSRI he thought you know you must be depressed okay and uh, she was actually pleased that the pill worked well and uh, she was pleased with it because it generally made her less anxious you know she used to be anxious driving the car and she was less anxious now so she was awfully pleased it took a few months before one or two of her friends began to say to her look you know you seem to be drinking more recently and she said oh no don't pay any heed to it and this went on and uh, she began to get into trouble. She began to do some things that were pretty outrageous um, when she had a dream. She was obviously having more than she could remember she was having. When mm -hmm. she woke up the next day, she didn't recall either how much she had or just what had happened. And then she began to get into trouble because, uh, you know, because she began to make nuisance calls to the police. And she crashed her car. And uh, she went back to uh, at the doctor and said, look, I think this drug may be causing my problems and he said no you're an alcoholic and the fact that you think the drug has caused the problem is just proof that you're an alcoholic so I'd change your pills for you and she was pleased at that and she knew so little about these pills that she didn't realize he changed her from one SSRI to a different SSRI so the problem kept going and she kept calling the police and making nuisance calls and they charged her and because she was charged she lost her job and everything had come apart okay so i got to see her a few years later now i have a phd in the serotonin system this woman who had dropped out of school early who knew nothing about these drugs or anything like this by this time had become convinced the drugs were the cause of uh, you know the problem and wasn't deterred when she went along to aa meetings which she was told she had to do and said I think my drug is causing the problem. And they said, no, 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 this is alcoholic thinking. You have to change it. She didn't. She went on the internet. She began to research at the serotonin system and she had to start from scratch, okay? And ends up a year or two later coming to me and telling me things about the serotonin system that I don't know. And she'd worked out exactly what was going wrong and what needed to be done as regards her pills to put the problem right. And it turns out she was right and the people who agreed with her but weren't letting the world know about it, the only people who had actually agreed with her were the pharmaceutical companies who recognized the issue privately but weren't telling anyone anything uh, actually about it. Now, this brings out the, well, for me, which is a key point, motivation is worth more than expertise. Mm. Whatever expertise Health Canada or FDA have, 
they have no motivation to dig. People who've gone the vaccine are a drug, have skin in the game, and particularly women. Mothers of children are Daughters of parents have a lot of skin in the game and they do extraordinary things. And, uh, you know, we would all be a lot healthier if we let a bunch of normal folk uh, decide if these things are actually safe or not, very, rather than can we tick a box or not. It's very interesting the way you describe that example of the, of the woman. Um, and I'm curious about, you know, why it is that the individual is so well poised to have this kind of medical insight. It, it's clear why it's going to matter to us in the way, as you say, motivation. The health Canada doesn't have the same motivation because it's not personal in the same way. Um, but I suspect there's something more going on there as well. That um, individuals have we have instinct, and instinct is a very complex, interesting, um, very clearly dismissed, what can we call it, a, a mental phenomenon of some kind, uh, instinct. And it's going to get lumped into that category along with anecdotes and become misinformation, isn't it? So this poor woman, I imagine, who goes to her physician and says, I don't think you're quite right about this. And then it turns out, you know, she threw the, the limited, presumably, research skills she has is able to show scientifically why her instincts were right. Um, but the fact that we dismiss anecdotes, we dismiss people's instinct, um, and not only that, but those things have become, I mean, our dismissing of those things have become incredibly moralized and politicized, haven't they? Because we've attached this term misinformation to them. And misinformation is not just a sort of epistemological term. It's not just that you've made an error in your thinking, right? You have failed moral, you're a bad citizen, right? You are a plague on human progress. Um, and so we, we, we're creating quite an interesting network of a discussion here, but to tie all of that back to what we were talking about earlier about experts, and we have this idea now, right, that these, these health experts or science experts are, would, it, would we even have the term, what is it, subject matter experts? All the companies want to hire subject matter experts, these people who have this really narrow, specialized uh, kind of knowledge. And the, the individual person is not a subject matter expert in anything in virtue of his or her health. And yet we have these powerful instincts when we know when something oh, is- Oh, it's not just instincts. Uh, the individual is a subject matter expert. Uh, in the sense of the people who became suicidal on Prozac first came mm -hmm. along and said things like, look, I've been depressed for years and I've been suicidal before but this is different. You know, mm -hmm. when you're on the inside of uh, the experience, you've got not just a hunch, but you know, you've got a bunch of things happening to you that you're trying to make sense of. You can get it wrong absolutely for sure. And that's where it's useful to have a person like me to come along and bounce ideas off, mm -hmm. okay? But the idea that I'm the expert on a thing, a drug or a vaccine that is entirely new that is going to produce things that have never been seen by anyone else before, when the person who comes in to me to tell them, uh, well, to tell me about these things that haven't ever been seen before, they're the expert and I should be working with them rather than against them, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's an interesting thing, which is that if you credit the people who come in as being 
pretty sensible and they're not going to be saying, the, I mean, sure, for instance, in the job I'm in, there's going to be some people who are lying to me. But for the most part, people are going to be coming in, telling it as it is, okay? And I can have a job where people come in and say some very strange things that are hard to work out and you know things aren't going right with you know, their treatment and it, it can become a problem if you're just thinking that I'm the expert and I'm going to change the drugs around because I'm the expert and I can say whatever drug they should be on you know you get a situation where doctors talk about heart sink patients you know it's a very stressful job seeing these patients who come in with all sorts of problems etc etc you know and part of the problem as you say is they're they're just not being reasonable about things. Um, but in actual fact, you can turn the job around and say, well, look, I've got a hundred patients, you know, who have things that are hard to work out, but rather than a hundred heart sink patients, you know, this is a hundred free research assistants. If I opt to work with them and the job can become much more fun and you end up learning things that you wouldn't have ever learned before. The other angle on this, and this comes back to a point that you mentioned earlier, and it links into the misinformation thing, which is health has become the religion these days. Right. And the vaccines and drugs are the sacraments. Now, what do I mean by a sacrament? Please unpack that for us. That's so interesting. Yeah, a sacrament is something that can only do good. Mm. Now, the irony here is that the Catholic Church is recognize that the Eucharist can harm, so they've taken gluten out of it. But at the same time, medicine has gone the opposite way. It used to be about giving poisons, and the art was bringing good out of a poison, out of the useful poison. And we're more likely to do that if the doctor remembers that he or she's giving you a poison. And if you're told, look, this is a poison, and you know you need to keep a close eye on everything that happens to you because while we're trying to do good, while we're you know what we're trying here is to poison the illness more than we poison you, and this is what we're hoping to do. But you have got to keep a hawk eye on exactly what's going on. Okay, but doctors have lost that. They've bought the idea, and yeah, you know, the patients coming to them as well have bought the idea that you know well it's a bit like. A bunch of Catholics who don't just go to Mass on Sunday, but just go to Mass every day of the week. It can be no harm going to Mass every single day of the week and getting the Eucharist every day of the week kind of thing. Well, mm. we bought the same idea, which is we go to the doctor and we end up on 10 or 12 different drugs. Uh, and this can't be any harm because they're all, you know, we're, we've got as many sacraments as we can possibly get. But it's a disastrous idea, and that's what's causing our life expectancy to fall, and is going to put doctors out of business. Because if the drugs work so wonderfully well, you don't need anything and are else. <laughs> so free of harms. Why are we paying doctors so much when nurses could give them? And in due course, robots will be able to give them. You know, we don't need to pay doctors as much. So doctors, in a sense, need to wake up and realize poisons are their friend. Unless the managers see them dealing with poisons, which is a terribly tricky thing to deal with, then they're going to wonder why they're paying these guys so much money. It's a fine line, I take it, between poison and panacea, or the conception of poison and panacea is in there. 
David, I, I've learned so much today. I just can't tell you. And I hope this is the beginning of conversations and not and not the terminus of one. But I'm going to ask one, one last question before we have to go. Um, do you think that human beings ex are experiencing unprecedented levels of fear these days, historically unprecedented? Yeah, I don't personally. No. I think it's, uh, yeah. And I'm going to whitter a bit here. Um, I, again, I think this goes back 40 years or so. I mean, what we're seeing now with uh, you know, the vaccines is a pattern that began roughly 40 years ago. Up till then, when we had a health issue, we brought problems to the doctor. We went to him or her and said, look, I have this problem, or you know, I have a bad pain in my chest, or I can't breathe if we had a pneumonia, okay? Uh, roughly 40 years ago or so, doctors and pharmaceutical companies at uh, the same time discovered the idea of risk, which was rather than treat heart attacks, which we're not great at doing, I mean, we'll do our best, or rather than treat pneumonias, which we're not, I mean, you know, we don't always uh, actually save people. Let's treat risk factors, which is your cholesterol levels, yes. or your blood pressure are your blood sugar levels or your mood scores or whatever, okay? We're not treating an illness here, we're treating a risk factor. You know, we're trying to make sure that you don't get a heart attack, but you've got to treat hundreds of people. You've got to give them a poison. You've got to give a poison to hundreds of people to save one life. Why do you do it? Well, you do it because the blood pressure figures, I mean, at you know, the same time we began to measure things and these produced figures like blood pressure, it's a bit high, okay? And we know that if it goes extremely high, you're at a higher risk of going on to a stroke. That's fine. When you get a bit older like me, your blood pressure goes a bit higher anyway. And that's a good thing. We used to think it was a good thing, but we end up treating the figures rather than the person. In the same way with blood sugar, we figure, well, you know, it shouldn't be too high because people might lose a toe. So let's try and keep it low. And we put, you know, we tried to adjust things so the figures got lower and lower. Uh, the further away from the higher levels that might cause you to lose a toe, the better. But in fact, if you become hypoglycemic, you're, you're much more likely to dement earlier. And most of us, if we had a choice between losing a toe or dementing, would prefer to lose a toe. And we've ultimately, more people now are going into hospital because of falls after they've been put on antihypertensives that are going into hospital for the strokes that the antihypertensives may cause. Same with drugs to treat bone densities. You know, lots of women after age of 15 may have a little bit of thinning of the bone. It's no harm. The drugs that thicken your bone abnormally cause fractures that are much more harmful. And, uh, are much more likely to lead to people ending up in hospital and on a bunch of are having to um, um, have surgery that is pretty complicated surgery and doesn't always work all that well. Mm -hmm. In the same kind of way with um, people who have been treated with drugs to lower blood sugars, uh, there are more people now going into hospital because of hypoglycemic episodes that are going into hospital for diabetes. You know, we've ended up 
creating something that's wonderful for the pharmaceutical companies, which is we give their pills from which they make money, which lead us going into hospital, which lets them advertise taking more of the pills in order to reduce hospital costs by keeping, you know, they've sold the idea that this will keep you out of hospital. Now, the point, just come back to your point, which is there's a certain imperiousness about uh, the figures when a pill has been advertised as the answer for these figures. Okay, and it's awfully hard for us to get out of this particular mindset. Mm -hmm. And what we've got with uh, the vaccines is this on steroids. We've got the figures, the deaths, the infections, the hospitalizations, and the vaccines being sold as the answer for this, which they're clearly not, but has caused all of us to get into a state of panic. But it's not that we were living with more fear than we ever had before. It's just a reflex that we've got to the bunch of figures, particularly when we're sold the idea that this is the answer. It's the so interesting, isn't it? When you're when you're told that there is there's a solution, there's a treatment, there's an answer to something to X, then you think, oh, well, X must have been a problem. I guess there was a problem. I didn't know there was a problem. What's the problem? <laughs> you know? So it puts. I mean, there's a lot of. Um, a lot of research into the, the the methods of advertising, especially with this, with respect to the pharmaceutical companies, right, and how they 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 make us believe that we are worse off than we would otherwise believe well, in order to. Yep, yeah, it isn't just you know, the companies per se. And uh, what you've got, uh, as I said, we used to bring problems to the doctor since mm. you know, the 1980s, 1990s. Doctors brought us problems. They've called us in for screening, okay, and give us problems that we didn't know we had. And this is, I mean, it isn't, you know, in uh, the process, they make us much more health conscious, but actually it's health neurotic yeah. often. Maybe a good way to bring this over is just weighing scales. They were introduced, weighing scales on which people could weigh themselves um, were introduced first in the 1860s. 10 years later, we have the first descriptions of an eating disorder of anorexia nervosa. In the 1920s, weighing scales for people came with brass plates on them saying what your ideal weight was for your height. Now, we're all various different shapes, so in a sense, there's no ideal weight. But what do you know? The eating disorders become much more common during the 1920s. 1960s, they become even more common again. And what happens then is we've got weighing scales in each of our bathrooms. Right. And this, I mean, what we've got is a general nervosa. You know, it's great to be able to measure. It's great to have a stopwatch if I'm trying to train to run the 100 meters in a quicker time than I did before. Having the figures can help. But if you've just got figures from one area of your life and they aren't balanced with you know, the figures from loads of other areas, you kind of lose the plot. You know, it, you, you can be, you can be Contextualized. hypnotized by you know, the figures. Yeah. Yeah, this is so interesting because we started talking out about um, the particular case of the woman in the hospital that you were called in to see and your own experience with the vaccine mandates at your university. And now where we've come to is we've kind of put those issues in context of these bigger questions, like what is modern medicine doing to us? What is it doing for us? What, what's happening to our lives in a holistic sense, not just physically, but, but the whole person, physical and mental aspects that make up a whole person as a result of, to put it bluntly, uh, money and medicine mixing. 
And uh, I think we, we, should, we should use that as a springboard for our next discussion because I, I have to let you go now, but please, will you, can you tell people where they can find work that you've done? I know you have a website. Could you give them uh, what that URL is and some of the books that you've written recently in case they wanna follow up with some of these ideas? Okay, well, I guess davidhealy.org uh, is a place where they can go to, uh, to actually find some of these ideas, and risk.org, rxisk.org. Um, and uh, yeah, the book that tries to convey this best is a book that came out last year called The Shipwreck of the Singular. Mm -hmm. And that's one that's very inexpensive and people can get. Um, and the other one that came out a year before that, which dealt with study three to nine, which I mentioned earlier, was called Children of the Cure. And that tells the background story uh, behind how we found out that the SSRIs can cause people generally, and children in particular perhaps, to have real problems on them. And the oddity is, this comes back to a point made earlier, which was, We've got 30 controlled trials of RCTs, supposedly company trials, on these drugs being given to children who are depressed, all negative. But the articles are all ghostwritten, which is an issue we haven't really picked up on, and perhaps when we meet the next time we can pick up on it. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> these are all ghostwritten and claim the drugs work wonderfully well. And as a result, Antidepressants are now the second most commonly taken drugs by teenage girls, even though all trials in this age group are negative. It's an extraordinary situation. There's so much to think about here. And I think if nothing else, and I think much, much more, but if nothing else, what you've encouraged me to do, and I hope others to do, is to think more intentionally about what we're trying to make ourselves into um, with respect to, to healthcare. I just have the description of your book, Shipwreck of the, of the Singular, up here. And part of the description says, and it's just talking about, you know, looking at our changing environment through a healthcare lens as opposed to an economic one. And then it says, one advantage to this is that each of us are better placed to put right what is going wrong in the climate of healthcare um, than we are to tackle the global global climate. And that's really been the theme throughout our conversation, hasn't it? That we, we need to be more realistic and aware of the role that experts in science can have in our lives, but ultimately take more responsibility and have more confidence in, in our own abilities. And uh, I'm sure that theme will continue the next time we chat. And um, would you like to have the last word, any lingering thoughts? Oh, sure, just what, just when you mention that is, yeah, I think people need to realize that the experts, and this means the regulators and public health people and the doctor you go and see are very much Wizard of Oz-like figures. And, um, you know, you need to find your inner Dorothy, basically. Lovely. Thank you so much, Dr. Healy.